Church, I need to issue a retraction this week and beg for your forgiveness. Last week, I began my sermon with a story, a fable about a minnow in an oyster bed that in retrospect was grossly unfair to oysters. In my story, if you remember it, I talked about the minnow who came in and out of the marsh every day as part of his daily tour in the oyster bed that had made its home there, ever at work building its shells and beds thicker and higher. Thicker and higher, if you remember. What I neglected to relate, though, and this was crucial background information that would have helped us understand more empathetically, perhaps, the oyster's plight and the reason for its never-ceasing chant What I neglected to say, clearly enough, was that oysters really do have good reason to build their shells thicker and higher. I have to beg for your pardon, and I hope uh, you'll at least allow me to amend my story. I want to acknowledge clearly, first of all, that no oyster, no oyster, has ever harmed another living being in the whole of world history. Some have cut their hands and sliced a tentacle trying to harvest oysters for sure, but that's on them. They are simple creatures that merely breathe in and out all day long and filter the water for their food. And yet, for most of world history, they've been a staple in the diet of crabs and octopus and, yes, even human beings. I confess this morning that even as I told you that story, my own mouth was salivating something fierce. Because oysters just happen to be one of my very, very favorites. And I confess as well that it occurred to me as I was writing and telling that story that the months we're in, March and April, are both our months. And if you know anything about oysters at all, you know that our months are the time to eat them. They have good reason to build up those beds and thicken those shells. If they didn't, there'd be no more oysters. And the minnow, we must admit, is rather fortunate to have the luxury of deciding to simply choose a different lifestyle. No, as it heads off every day, darting to and fro, oysters have to work, have work that they must do if they're going to survive. Forgive me for that, if you will, please. I hope that that might add to the lesson that might be drawn from that story. Because perhaps the world isn't as easy as the story suggests on its face for every single living being to make simple decisions not to build shells, as was the case for the minnow in my story. Perhaps we also have to think with rather than despite the oyster about what it might look like to pursue forgiveness and reconciliation even, even while the world around you makes necessary the safety of a shell. Now to be perfectly clear, I don't mean by my retraction or emendation to neglect, to negate one bit what I said last week about the need and the call to grow with the freedom of the minnow, as far as that as possible, to build our lives and our practice of forgiveness on the peace that God in Christ has won. 
And I certainly, certainly don't mean to retract in any way what I said in last week's sermon about the space that that peace opens up for us to all step bravely and confidently into the broken spaces of our world. But I would. I would have us think a little harder and a little bit more compassionately, maybe, about those oysters and their situation as well. What a risk it is for them to open their shell at all. What a soul-shattering thing it would be for them to take that risk and to extend that trust and then be gobbled up. What a thing it is for you or me or anybody really to contemplate extending forgiveness when our forgiveness has been taken advantage of, when we're the only ones for whom there is a risk. What a thing it is when the gesture of forgiveness isn't even understood, let alone received on the other side. What a thing it is when it's only met with anger or rejection or with so many other things that can make this practice risky and one-sided. What then? What then, people of God? Does Christ's call to forgiveness somehow bypass the oysters until that fateful day when the lion and the lamb, the oysters and the Whitleys, will live in harmony. Are the oysters off the hook? Or is there not still a commission for the oysters between now and then? Looking back at our scripture from Romans today, I wonder if you caught that part at the beginning of chapter 6 where Paul also raises the possibility that forgiveness might be abused and taken advantage of. What then are we to say, he writes? Should we continue in sin in order that grace may abound? By no means, he says. In this scenario, of course, it is God that has taken the risk of forgiving. And it's you and I who are the ones who hold it in our power to abuse it. And he's absolutely right, of course. But we shouldn't do that. As the message has it this morning, I should hope not. If we've left the country where sin is sovereign, how can we still build our houses there? So much for the predators, the lions called to lay with those lambs. Their instructions are easy to understand. Cut it out, Paul says. But what about the oysters? What about the ones who find themselves on the other side of that equation? In this scenario, they sit in the position of God, don't they? They're the ones taking the risk. They're the ones who stand to get taken advantage of and to be let down. And the apostle here has made no guarantees. It very well could happen that they may get taken advantage of. I'm sure that Paul was writing this with some first-hand experience in mind. In fact, over and over again throughout the history of the church, the call has been made to not 
take advantage of grace and forgiveness like this. Some of our most famous sermons and books, like Dietrich Bonhoeffer's The Cost of Discipleship, are about cheap grace, which only goes to testify to our propensity to do it. There's real risk here in forgiveness. Real exposure. And yet everywhere surrounding this observation here in Romans, there is the loud proclamation that God has gone forward with it anyway. Anyway. Despite the risk. There is a claim being made here that this forgiveness was worth the risk. That the possibility that forgiving may just be the thing to break open the endless repetitive cycle of hurt is worth the risk. There's a claim being made here that despite those injuries and wounds, God lives on. And that that life, that grounded security of unquenchable, interminable life that God possesses makes this healing risk thinkable. And there is also the claim here today that if you if you are heirs of that life as well in your baptism, then perhaps forgiveness isn't really the risk that you thought it was. Friends, in Romans, the oysters, the victims, the abused, the at risk of being taken advantage of, sit in the seat of God. And God takes the risk of forgiving, takes the risk of restoring to wholeness, takes the risk of sending his Christ into the world. And as we start looking ahead to Easter, we remember that what God has accomplished among us is bound together with that fierce persistence of Easter's life. Friends, I don't know why or how someone could adopt such a risky and radical practice of forgiveness as this unless they had the assurance, the assurance that their lives are founded on something deeper and surer. I don't know why anyone would do that. And if it's not, I'm, I'm not sure that I can recommend it. It's just too risky. Just too dangerous. You're liable to get taken advantage of. And that's the truth. But, but on the other hand, if your life really is grounded in that assurance, and if you see clearly what the Scriptures teach consistently about the power of forgiveness to disrupt the cycle, and even open up the space for a thousand births of new life, then what choice do you have, really? What really is the risk that you're taking? Paul writes here in chapter 6, verse 11, one of my very favorite verses in all of Scriptures, and I think one of the most consequential sentences in all of Scripture. He writes, So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God 
in Christ Jesus. Really dead to that. And really alive to this. Enough to take the risk. Enough to take up God's own work of breaking this pattern of human sin and brokenness by putting it behind us and allowing something new to take hold. You know, conventional wisdom says this. Conventional wisdom says, forgive only when it's not risky anymore. Forgive only as a response to someone else's contrition or repentance. Forgiveness, in fact, is dependent on those prior conditions being met. And until they're met, wrestle your enemies into submission. Until they admit defeat and beg for your forgiveness. Sound familiar? It should. It's our native language everywhere you look. But what God has called us to take up in Christ is quite unconventional. In fact, it bucks this very convention that we're all so used to. It says that the forgiveness part comes first. That it risks offering itself first to others just as God in Christ offers Himself to us. And that that forgiveness... That grace is the thing that opens up a new space. A new avenue to walk forward in our world. That's work that only oysters can do. That only oysters can do. This morning I included this picture up on the screens that I wanted to show you uh, in closing today. This is a Japanese kintsugi bowl. That's what that art form is called. It's an art form in which the artisan spends an incredible amount of time crafting a highly detailed piece, perfectly symmetrical, extremely delicate. And after all of that time, all of that attention and work, when the piece is just perfect, they break it. They break it. But only then is when the real work begins. Because as you can see, they regather those pieces and forge them back together with gold in this case. And that is the real art. The real beauty of this craft, that this once perfect, once delicate piece of china has been regathered and put back together and strengthened with gold. May God reveal the true beauty in us on the other side of such regatherings. And all of God's people said, Amen. Amen.